Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks. My name is Terry Lee. Uh, love that video. You're going to see several videos from our church members over the next few weeks talking about how the cross personally changed their lives. Uh, we do that, one, because we all need to be reminded of how the gospel has changed our lives. Uh, two, because as we prepare for Easter, we want you to be thinking about people uh, in your life that don't know the impact of the gospel, that don't have a relationship with the Lord, that do not know what Christ has done for us. And, and to think, okay, who can I invite specifically to come on Easter Sunday, a Sunday that people might be more willing to, to come to a church gathering? Who can I be inviting that day and praying for right now that the cross would change their life, that the stories that we hear over the next couple weeks would be shared by more and more people that yet to know who God is and what he has done for them through sending his son. Now, if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and find Mark chapter 15. We're continuing our study through the book of Mark. If you're a guest with us, I want you to know that we have a guest bag for you, a little gift bag that uh, we would love for you to grab as you head out uh, after our church gathering. would love the opportunity to meet you, uh, and, and some of our volunteers would also love the opportunity to help you get connected in any, any way we can. Now, as we get to Mark 15, we're going to consider again the theme that Christ is king. And yet, even in that statement, we recognize that Christ, his kingship in his incarnation looks so different from perhaps what we would have imagined. Contrary to how most people would view a powerful king, Jesus sets aside his power to become a servant of all. He shows restraint in his power to bring about redemption, to bring about the salvation of the world. His humiliation on the cross is actually the road to his exaltation in the resurrection, uh, that we would behold who he is, the king of glory. Now, as we near the end of our study in the book of Mark, I think it's important uh, to go back to, to the first words that we see spoken by Jesus at the beginning of the book of Mark, because it kind of sets the tone for everything that we see unfolding throughout each chapter in this book. Whenever Jesus comes, the first words spoken in Mark 1.15 are this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. He's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is the long-awaited king of this kingdom of God. And he brings the good news. Now, where would that language of king, kingdom, come from? Now, I think it's important for us to review some Old Testament context uh, to get a good grasp of what God has already said before we read the book of Mark to truly understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Whenever we think about our government, we know that our government is run as a democracy, right? Uh, there are no kings, there are no queens. Uh, so whenever we think about the concept of a, a king, we have to kind of, you know, put ourselves in a different context to understand that. Well, whenever we look at the Old Testament, whenever we look at Genesis, Exodus, I mean, everything that we've read so far in our Bible reading plan, uh, we know that, that there is no president, there is no king. Uh, the, the people of God are a theocracy. And so while there are prominent leaders like Abraham or Moses, we know that God is ultimately the one who is governing his people. It's one of the things that set them apart, that God was the one who led the people. It was a, it was a theocracy through and through. Now, over time, the people of Israel, they begin to cry out for a human king. 
They wanted to be like the other nations. And eventually, God gave them a king. He gave them King Saul. And whenever you look at the, the life of King Saul, we know that he wasn't exactly a role model. Whenever you look at David, you see, yes, he was a man after God's own heart and yet had some majorly sinful flaws that you know, left a stain on his life. Uh, we know that after King David was Solomon, and then, uh, you know, Rehoboam comes, and, and then the, the kingdom splits, and there are kings on both sides, northern and southern. There are more wicked kings uh, than there were good kings. Eventually, the people of Israel, they're led off into exile, they're taken captive, and, and it's obvious that no one can govern like God does. There, whenever they are taken captive and enslaved, even though they would return, they would ultimately be under the rule of other pagan rulers. They longed for a better king, and the Scriptures taught them to long for a better king. You see, Jacob, who is better known as Israel to us, had 12 sons. Uh, one of them was Judah, and he told Judah in Genesis 49.10, he said, there will be one who comes from your line who will be this great king. He says, the scepter will not depart from between your feet. This idea that there would be a king, even, even there laced in Genesis 49.10, whenever Balaam uh, you know, was, was trying to prophesy against uh, the people of Israel, what happens? We, we read this, this past week in Numbers 24.19. He, he, he can't prophesy against the people of Israel, but instead, instead says, no, a star shall come out of Jacob, out of Israel. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. There's this idea that there would be a messianic ruler. Now, even back in that prophecy made to Judah, he said that the king that would come from the line of Judah would be one who, who leads all peoples in obedience to him, not just Israel, but all peoples. This, this hint that there would be this messianic king who would rule in a way that was so significant that it could not be ignored. Now, some people looked at the life of David and wondered, could David be the fulfillment of this great king? He was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, although he had some, some sinful moments, he was ultimately a good king. And yet God makes a promise to David saying that this king is still forthcoming. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, God told David that he would bring a king through his lineage that would be enthroned forever. And so after this promise was made to David, Israel awaited a king they longed for a better king. And yet, perhaps even to their surprise, things went from bad to worse. They were ultimately taken captive and exiled. They longed for a true and better king who would make all things right as they were subjected to other rulers. And then a child was born. The Son of God enters into history. He takes on flesh, and he announces in Mark 1.15, the kingdom has come. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. And so then whenever we get to Mark 15, the question that Pontius Pilate asks is the question that should be on the mind of every reader familiar with these promises and immersed in the context of Mark 15. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you this king? Are you the one who wields the scepter, who will be enthroned forever? Are you the one who has come to make all wrong things right? Jesus, are you the one? And in a twist of, of, of what should 
should make us grieve. It seems like most people in this story miss it. That Pilate would ask this question and hear the answer, you have said so, and yet not recognize who Christ is and fall to his feet and worship. That the soldiers who were created for the worship of God instead mock him. That the religious leaders who searched the scriptures thought they could find life in them and yet did not see that the king stood right before their eyes. So whenever we come to this passage, we look for the king of kings. But we must take note that he will not look as we might would have expected. You see, he is the king of kings, but he doesn't wear the crown that you might think. His coronation takes place on a cross of all places. He will save the world, yes, but by dying for it. He conquers his enemies by letting them kill him. He doesn't wage war on a battlefield, no. He wages war in the heart of every person that hears this good news, that he is the cosmic king and the savior of everyone who believes. He wages war in the heart of men to bring them from death to life. You see, in Christ, we find a powerful king. And yet, how does he use his power? To take the penalty for the sin of those that do not deserve it. And so if we were to summarize this passage, we would say it something like this, that Jesus is the powerful king who takes the penalty for our sin. Jesus is the powerful king who takes the penalty for our sin. Now, if you were here last week, I have to apologize for completely ruining your notes uh, because many of you know that I said I'm going to give you two paradoxes that we see in Christ's passion. And by the time the sermon ended, I only told you about one. All right, so uh, some of you type A people came up to me and you're like, what was the second paradox? I missed the second paradox. You must have said it and I wasn't paying attention. Okay, first off, I love that people in our church take notes like that. And so that you like came up to me and you're like, I cannot sleep tonight until I know what the second paradox is. So have no fear. We're gonna talk about it, uh, about, about it this morning. And whenever we go, go through it, you will say to yourself, I am so glad he did not try to fit that into last week's sermon also. But whenever we look at, at the, the paradoxes in the passion of Christ, I mean, we see that, that the entire story is just dripping with dramatic irony because we are standing on this side of things as the audience, and we know everything that's going on. We know who Christ is. We know the miracles that he's worked. And, and yet we see the people in the story say things like, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? And, and we're, we're standing there reading this, almost as if we were at the foot of the cross and we want to say, he, he's not trying to save himself. He, he's not coming down from the cross to save himself. He's staying on the cross to save the whole world. We see that his weakness as he's being mocked is actually a display of omnipotent strength. There's so much irony here. Whenever it looks like he's being defeated, he's actually accomplishing a victory of infinite value. And so this morning we're going to consider these paradoxes again. And I pray that through this that you will see who Christ is, be refreshed by it, find rest in him, and be encouraged to follow him as king all the more. So with that being said, let's look at Mark 15. Uh, let's just look at verses 1 through 5, just kind of give us a running start as to what we saw last week and then jump into what's ahead. God's word says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, 
are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here again, we see that first paradox. that The omnipotent king subjects himself to accomplish salvation. Now, I don't know how you want to organize your notes this week since we talked about this last week. I'm going to let you deal with that. But just as by way of reminder, it's the omnipotent king here who is subjecting himself to accomplish salvation. Uh, we know that if, if they simply, you know, if the religious leaders brought charges to Pilate that this man is claiming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies or he's committing blasphemy by saying that he is the son of God, Pilate could care less. Rome's not worried about that. But whenever they make the accusation that he is committing the crime of sedition, that he is trying to compete with Caesar's authority, immediately he gets the ear of Rome. And so, so then he's led over to Pilate. And Pilate begins, you know, he's going to go through this process. He's going to interrogate him. He's going to scourge him. And ultimately, it's going to lead to his crucifixion. Now, look how Jesus is here. We know that he is the one who spoke the stars into existence, right? He rules over every blade of grass and every human soul. And yet he stays silent, restraining his power to accomplish salvation. How does Christ wield his limitless power? Not for his self-preservation, but for us for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for our preservation, right? So, so that's the omnipotent king who is wielding his power, not for selfish gain, but for us. This should humble us. This should cause us to praise him. Well, John here uh, in, in his gospel, he, he gives more, more details about the conversation that, that Pilate and Jesus have. And so he says things like, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, right? He, he knows that even if he was to explain to Pilate the kind of king he is, Pilate wouldn't understand. In Luke's gospel account, he actually says that after Pilate interrogates Jesus, he sends him over to Herod Antipas. Herod just kind of mocks Jesus, and then, you know, he sends him back to Pilate. And so now Pilate has to figure out what to do with Jesus. And so he takes kind of the diplomatic route, and he just says, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this decision about what will happen to Jesus to a vote. We're just going to kind of ask the crowd, ask the riot uh, that, that could possibly break loose here if they don't get their way. We'll just ask them to maybe try to keep the peace. And that leads us to the next situation we see here in verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he, being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here we find the second paradox, that the innocent one takes the place of the guilty. The innocent one here takes the place of the guilty. You see, by the time that we make it to verse 6, there's this huge crowd that has formed kind of in the governor's quarters. 
Uh, they want to watch the events unfold. As you remember, the population right now in Jerusalem is huge because everybody is there for Passover. All Jewish males above the age of 12 had to come and celebrate Passover within the city. And, and so there is a huge crowd here. And it was a custom of Pilate to release a prisoner for the Jewish people on each Passover. And, and so here he, he brings this, you know, proposed criminal. Uh, this, this guy is not guilty of, you know, something as small as like unpaid parking tickets um, or the kind of stuff that we typically see when we do a background check for Little Oaks, you know, and it's like, oh, who is speeding, you know? Um, this is one of the best conversations me and Jimmy have in the office. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, and then this guy was not just like, oh, you know, he like, you know, did some stuff minor here and there. No, this guy created an insurrection that stirred up, you know, the government, it's, uh, you know, creating instability among the peoples, murder takes place, he is guilty of murder, this is a bad guy, and, and Pilate here is, is proposing that either he releases Barabbas, this clearly guilty, convicted criminal, or Jesus, this guy that he seems to find no fault in, this miracle-working man who claims to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And, and so here he says, hey, which one do you want me to release for you? Now, it, it's likely that Barabbas was well-known because, uh, you know, to the common class, it, it would have been, you know, he kind of would have been slightly a hero for, for trying to, you know, uh, overthrow the opposing government. And at the same time, you would never imagine that they would want a guy like this to just be released in the public after he had done something so bad. Here, Pilate is trying to appeal to the compassion of the crowd, right? I mean, I mean, look at, look at this man. Look at Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. You can't find any fault in him. Or would you rather me release this convicted criminal? Just because the religious leaders wanted Jesus to be put to death didn't mean that they represented the entire crowd. Now, it's interesting if you look at verse 10, because we, we kind of understand a little bit of what Pilate is perceiving. He, he understands that it is out of envy that the chief priests have delivered Jesus up. Now, before we go on, let's consider just how dreadful this sin is that is the motivation for the religious leaders to get Christ killed. They're envious. They're jealous. Let this be a reminder to us of just how destructive jealousy is. I mean, think about that in your own life. Whenever, whenever you look at someone else and you see what they post or the way that they talk or what they have, or you're just an outside observer of their life, and you begin to look at them and envy rises within you, that sin of jealousy takes root in your heart. And, and what you say ultimately is, if I had what they have, then I would be happy. Right? If, if I was given what they have been given, then I would be satisfied. I mean, we can think about that as, as something as, as simple, right? Or innocent seeming as better health, right? I wish I had that life. Or, or being free of debt. Like, I'm, I'm jealous of that place that they're in. And yet, don't let that excuse this sin in your heart. Because essentially, our jealousy is a theological declaration. Now, now, let's consider that for a moment. Essentially, our jealousy is a theological declaration because whenever we are jealous, what we are ultimately saying is, God, you have not given me all that I need to be satisfied. And God, if you were truly good, my life would look like theirs. God, if you were truly as good as you say that you are, then my life would look a lot more like theirs does. 
You see, jealousy isn't just, you know, a little bit of discontentment or just kind of, you know, uh, being ambitious or something like that. No, the heart of jealousy is not trusting God, not trusting God's plan, not trusting God's goodness. You see, it's, it's destructive. The opposite of jealousy is not simply contentment. The opposite of jealousy is trust in the Lord. And so what do we do? We choose to believe that God is good. We interpret the events of our lives clinging to the promise that God is always good, even if we can't understand it in the moment. You see, the religious leaders, they felt like they deserved the throne instead of seeing Jesus as the king, the one who was on the throne. They were jealous of Jesus's influence. Uh, they, they wanted his following. He was threatening their power and they didn't want to submit to Jesus. But compare the religious leaders to the words of John the Baptist. Whenever people begin leaving John the Baptist to follow Jesus, what does he say? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. I must decrease and he must increase. And so whenever those thoughts of jealousy creep in where you say, ultimately, I want to be on the throne, Lord, we say, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. Help me to trust you. Help me to relinquish my desire for control to you and to believe that you are good because ultimately Christ is the omnipotent king who is on the throne and he gave up his life to free us from the guilt that was upon us. And whenever we look back at this story, I think we see that Pilate underestimates the, the amount of sway that the religious leaders would have on the crowd. Because what do we see in verse 11? It says that the religious leaders stir up the crowd. Uh, it, they, they're all riled up. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for the, them Barabbas instead. Uh, we know that Pilate will eventually try to wash his hands from this. He, he's not, Pilate is not a great guy. If you were here for the sermon last week, you know that he was a guy who had no problem killing people for his own gain. And yet what we're going to see is that whenever the chief priests say, yeah, this, this guy claimed to be the son of God, he's, he's going to get fearful. Whenever Pilate's wife comes to him in the gospel of Matthew and says, I had a dream about this man and he is righteous, have nothing to do with him. He kind of begins to backpedal, and he's wondering how to best handle this situation. And so he just kind of takes the route of a common politician and says, hey, what shall I do with him? What do you, what do you guys want me to do with him? Trying to dodge a riot or, or perhaps any usurping of his authority. And so the crowd answers, crucify him. Now, it doesn't seem like Roman rulers typically hesitated to use brute force in, in any instance that they were able to. And yet here, Pilate responds. He says, wait, Why? I find no fault in this man. Why would you want me to crucify him? He says he's innocent. And, and here's another one of those moments in which we, we see the irony in Scripture. Because Pilate says this man shouldn't die because he has done nothing wrong. And yet we know that because he is completely innocent is the only reason that he could die for sinners. You see, if, if a sinful man died then that would just be a just punishment for sin. What does Romans 6.23 say? That the wages of sin is death. And yet Christ, being completely sinless, unblemished, without defect, just as Olivia read in 1 Peter, makes him the only one who can actually substitute his life for ours. The only one who can take upon the penalty of sin because he had committed none. The only one who can attribute his righteousness to us because he is the only righteous one who has ever lived. Pilate is saying, this man should not die. 
But for us as the reader, we're saying this is the only man who could die for us to save us. And so the shadow of the cross grows, grows closer still. Here he asks, shall I crucify your king? And the response of the crowd is crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They cried out again, verse 13 says, crucify him. Whenever I was about six or seven years old, uh, we, we did a play at our church uh, growing up. It was, you know, called the judgment play, uh, passion play. Um, there are parts of that that I still have nightmares about because my uncle played the devil. So if you thought your childhood was weird, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, my parents are here this morning too, so they get a real kick out of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, whenever I was six or seven, I got the only, only part that I was probably, you know, able to play and remember my lines. And um, as the guy who was playing Jesus was, you know, kind of standing before the guy that was Pilate, and he says, what shall I do with him? Uh, me and some of my friends, our job was to run down the aisle, uh, to come before the steps, and to yell out, crucify him, crucify him. And so I did that, you know, I did that we did that play for like five years and I would do that for, you know, a few weeks on end, a couple nights a week. And, you know, obviously it was just a play, uh, but, I, but I can't help but to read this passage and to see us in Mark 15 as a, as a part of the crowd. And I say that knowing that most of us would never audibly cry out for the crucifixion of our Lord. I know that. Right? We wouldn't audibly cry out for the crucifixion of our Lord. And yet, whenever I look at my life, I know that I daily commit the sin that required his crucifixion. I daily commit the sin that required that Christ would be crucified. And so in every sense of the word, I have cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Knowing the bitterness of it and also the beauty that comes through the salvation that his crucifixion provides. And so what do we see in verse 15? That Pilate's weak conscience gives way to the cry of the crowd. He wished to satisfy them, and so he, he released Barabbas. He lets the convicted criminal go free, and the innocent one is condemned. And then, then he scourges Jesus. He has his, his soldiers whip Jesus. A scourge was uh, this brutal tool that was designed, uh, a whip with braided leather, and within the braids there was woven glass and bone and metal that was designed to bruise the skin and soften it so that ultimately it would rip through the skin and expose the bone and muscle underneath. This was an immeasurably painful act for anyone to go through. Oftentimes, whenever a crowd, even if they yelled for someone to be crucified, whenever they saw this taking place, they would have compassion on whoever it was that was being whipped and beaten. And they would say, okay, okay, no, no, stop this, stop this. And yet not here, why? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Christ knew that he had to hang on a tree, that he would have to become a curse for us to conquer the curse of sin. And as we read this story, Mark's record of this event is intended to shock us. I mean, think about the first people to have read this. Think about the people who, who would have heard this story for the first time. Barabbas is set free. Jesus, the one who is innocent and without fault, is the one who is condemned ultimately to death. And yet we recognize that the story of Jesus and Barabbas is the story of us and Jesus, that we are more like Barabbas than we would like to admit. 
you might be offended that I would compare you to Barabbas, and yet whenever I look at my own life, I see that there are several labels that he received that apply to me as well. He was a murderer. And while most of us would say that gets us off the hook because we've never killed anybody, how does Jesus talk about murder in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if you've ever been angry with someone, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you have committed the exact same sin that Cain committed against Abel. You are a murderer guilty before a holy God. Not only that, he was an insurrectionist, a rebel to be exact. What does this mean? That he tried to overthrow the authority that was over him. And yet we were created in the image of God to live under the command of God. And we have rebelled and broken his command in every single way. I mean, think about that for a moment. If a rebel commits treason against a king, he is worthy of death. And our sin before a holy God has earned us the same. We are like murderers. We are like rebels, insurrectionists before God. Not only that, he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned and in chains. And yet, what do we know? That every person enters the world with a sinful nature. That we are born in bondage to sin. That our sinful nature is hostile to God. And by that, we are enslaved. Romans 6, Paul says we are enslaved to sin. Jesus says whoever commits a sin is enslaved to sin. We know what it's like to be bound, to be imprisoned by lust or control or our desire for comfort or greed or jealousy or whatever it might be. We know what it's like to feel behind the bars of sin. And just like Barabbas, if there would be any hope for getting out of this mess, someone else would have to take his place. The time must be served. The penalty must be inflicted. If there is truly going to be justice, you can't just let somebody go free. No, someone must take that place. And the beauty of the gospel is that someone did. You see, just like Jesus took the place of Barabbas, Jesus takes our place on the cross for the sin that we deserve. Now, even the name of Barabbas points to what Christ will ultimately do. The name Barabbas, think about that for a moment. Whenever Paul says, cry out, Abba, Father, you see that word, Abba, right there in the name of Barabbas. Whenever he calls Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah, what's he saying? You're the son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah. Barabbas' name, I mean, once again, it's just the irony that is here in this passage. His name literally means son of the father. And what happens in Mark 15? The true son of the father takes the place of this man who is named son of the father so that we might become children of God. The innocent one takes the place of the guilty so that the guilty might go free. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21 where we read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God the Father made him who knew no sin, who was completely innocent in every way, to be sin, to take on sin, and to absorb the punishment of sin so that we, who have committed transgression and iniquity in every sense of the word, might be counted as righteous and set free. You see, the story of Jesus and Barabbas illustrates the power of the gospel. Whenever we summarize the gospel here at the Oaks, we say it simply in four words, that the gospel is Jesus in my place. The gospel is Jesus in my place. This encapsulates the, the reality of substitutionary atonement. 
that Jesus, the spotless lamb, the ultimate fulfillment of what was shadowed throughout every lamb that was slain in the Old Testament, that Jesus, our Passover lamb, takes our sin upon his shoulders and dies as our substitute. But not only that, it encapsulates the concept of propitiation, that the wrath of God was fully absorbed by Christ so that nothing in the cup of wrath would be left for you and I, and so that God's favor would rest upon us through the finished work of Christ. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the grace and mercy of the gospel is that it does not have to be yours because Christ died in your place and that you can receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The innocent one is condemned so that the guilty might go free. We find also a third paradox in this passage. Look at verses 16 through 20. We read, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Paradox three, the one who is worthy of worship is mocked and ridiculed. As if it wasn't enough for Jesus to be whipped and beaten. The soldiers also decided to wound Christ with their words as well. Here in Mark 15, we find that they make a mock coronation of sorts for our king. He deserved the inauguration of a king, and instead he receives the humiliation of a common criminal. Consider just how tragic this scene is in verses 16 through 20. No, an author that I love to read is Elise Fitzpatrick. She is a biblical counselor and, and writes on you know, just a ton of different things. But um, in her book, Found in Him, it's a book on the incarnation and our union with Christ. She, she tells this story in ordinary language. And in a way, it helps us to feel this story um, on, a, on a deeper level as we look at the scriptures and reflect on the truth here. Listen to this. I, I want to read you this excerpt. She said, so the soldiers threw down their dice and their other amusements and a whole battalion of battle-hardened men, about 600 of them, lined up to take their turn at making their friends laugh while Jesus suffered and bled. They looked at his naked body. They found a scarlet robe and put it on him and they gave him a pretend scepter. They knelt before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They rolled on the ground laughing. This was the most fun they'd had since getting posted to this God-forsaken wasteland. Soon some clever man found a thorn bush and twisted it into a crown that they forced into his sacred head. Careful now, you don't want to get jabbed, one friend spoke to another. And when the merriment began to die down, when all the men were tired of making fun of this Jew, those who enjoyed inflicting punishment took over and they spit in his bloodied face and took his scepter, reed, and beat him on the head with it but a man's only got so much energy. And soon they decided that the party was over. So they put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. I think that shows just the gruesome nature of what is taking place here. 
just the height of depravity present in this moment as the one who is worthy of worship is being mocked and ridiculed. If only they knew who they were dealing with. If only they knew that they were in the presence of the one true God. They would have taken off their sandals. They would have hidden their face from his glory. But instead, they exchanged the honor that he deserved with insults. They exchanged the worship that he was worthy of for wounds. We see here that the soldiers that spoke out against Jesus, those who were mocking him and beating him, this was no longer the temple guard. These were soldiers that were from the Syro-Palestinian region. These were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And isn't it ironic again here that Jesus, the light of the nations, the hope of the Gentiles is being beaten by them. The very ones that he came to save, he was despised by. So then he's led into Pilate's headquarters as as many as 600 were a part of this battalion of soldiers that were around him. The mockery of the soldier begins, soldiers begin with the way that they dress Jesus. They took a purple cloak and they threw it upon his blood-soaked shoulders. This was a a military cloak and in some of the, you know, gospels it's called a scarlet cloak and it was most likely fated to have kind of a light purple color. Perfect, just, to, just enough purple to mimic the royalty that Jesus laid claim to. Here he is humbled before these soldiers. And his whole life was one of humility. Consider that for a moment. Here he is clothed with a hand-me-down cloak from a soldier. And yet he was born in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths, the king of all creation coming in humble form to serve us and mocked. This king also had a crown. We see here that he is given a crown, but not the crown that we would expect. You see, in in first century culture, the crown was a symbol of honor and strength, just as it is now, although not as common. But in that time period, whenever an Olympic athlete won a race or, or some kind of contest, or whenever a, a warrior returned from battle in victory, a laurel wreath was put on their head to symbolize the crowning of one who was victorious. It was this sign of one who is great and awesome. And yet the, thorn, the thorny crown that, that Jesus would receive was designed for pain not for praise. These were not the thorns like you would see on a rose bush. These were like two inch long thorns that would have come from a thorn bush in this area. The thorns that were on his head, what his crown was made of was a result of the curse of all creation. Think about that for a moment. Where did thorns originate? They are a product of the fall. They are a product of sin that first took place in the garden. They grew out of a ground that had been cursed by God. You see, whenever God created everything, he created it good. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. They had a good relationship with him, and he told them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet what happened? They ate, and sin entered into all creation. The relationship that man had with God was torn asunder. And yet, God, being rich in mercy, pursues them still, gives them a promise that there would be one who would come from Eve's lineage who although his heel would be bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent and do away with sin. Another one of the effects that God talks about in Genesis 3 verses 17 through 18 is the cursing of the ground and the thorns it would then yield. He says, cursed is the ground because of you, because of sin. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And in order for Jesus the King to take away sin, he would wear our curse as his crown. He would crush the serpent's head, yes, by taking the result of our sin upon his own. Here he is, he has the curse placed upon his own head so that he could conquer it in one fell swoop. The soldiers here must have thought they were pretty clever. They looked at Jesus. They saw his blood-stained robe. They saw the crown upon his head. They put a, a reed in his hand as kind of a mock scepter. They begin to make fun of him, thinking that they have the upper hand when in reality, Jesus is sovereign over this entire situation to bring salvation to all who would believe. Jesus predicted that he would be mocked in Mark 10 in this exact way. Even Isaiah, in Isaiah 50 verse 6, talks about Jesus saying, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And yet we see that his humiliation was necessary for his exaltation. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians 2? He says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very tongues that mocked Jesus would one day confess that he is the Lord. Yes, they might have laughed at Jesus when they called him the king of the Jews, but their laughing will one day be silenced by reverent awe and worship in his presence. And so what happens? They they strip Jesus, they threw his clothes back upon him, and they lead him out to crucify him. And you might be asking, well, What purpose does it serve to walk this well-worn path again of Christ's suffering? The story makes us wince. As we we draw closer to Easter and think about these weeks in particular, we're always reminded of the death of Christ and his suffering, but if we're honest, we don't like to look at it for long. What should our response be to such a grim picture of Christ's torture and suffering? I hope to propose a few in our closing minutes. The suffering of Christ reveals the ugliness of sin. The suffering of Christ reveals the ugliness of sin. When we look at Christ's suffering, we can't make light of the sin that we commit. It's not just worthy of a slap on a wrist or just kind of an uncomfortable confinement for a couple days. No, for for the wrath of God against sin to be fully served, it deserved a suffering like this a death like this, a torture like this. May the suffering of Christ make us hate the sin that caused it. Whenever I look at Mark 15, I can't help but be reminded of the second verse of how deep the Father's love for us. Because the lyrics of that song place us into Mark 15. The words go like this, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. May we not cherish the sin that demanded the crucifixion of our king. Let us do away with it. Let us put it to death as Christ was put to death for us.
The suffering of Christ also exposes the depth of God's love for you. Consider that for a moment. The suffering of Christ exposes the depth of God's love for you. When John Calvin commented on this passage, he says, here is brightly displayed the inconceivable mercy of of God toward us in bringing his only begotten son so low on our account. This was also a proof which Christ gave of his astonishing love toward us, that there was no disgrace to which he refused to submit for our salvation. Consider what the love of God for you cost him. Some of of you might be sitting here and you think that you are unloved. You think that you're overlooked. Maybe you're sitting here and you just don't really think that you are impressive enough for anyone to notice you. Could I remind you of how much God loves you? Could we look at the suffering of Christ and you see the love that God has for you? That God loves you so much that he was willing to put his son to unimaginably, unimaginable suffering to save you? Consider that Christ endured hell on earth to bring you into heaven. Consider that Christ loves you so much that he would suffer and die for you. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, well, if God loves me, then he does not know just how bad I am. If God truly loves me, he doesn't know just how many times I might let him down. But isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That he does know. That he knows better than you do and chose to love you still. This is the grace and the mercy of God's love for you. You don't have to earn his love. You simply need to accept it through Christ's finished work by repenting of your sin and turning to him. Christian brother or sister, stop measuring God's love for you by your daily performance or by your current circumstances. Measure God's love for you by Christ's finished work on the cross in your place. Christ suffered to show you the depth of God's love for you. And the suffering of Christ also reveals the power of the gospel to save anyone who believes. It isn't lost on us, right, that Christ comes and whenever whenever the the inscription above his head is written, the king of the Jews, it is written in three different languages. He is the one who comes and fulfills the promise that was made in Genesis 49, 10, that he will bring about obedience of all the peoples, that he is the one who is enthroned forever from the tribe of Judah, that Jesus came as the light of the Gentiles to save all who would believe. Let us have compassion upon a world that doesn't know him and invite them to believe that Christ is king. The suffering of Christ enables us to endure when we suffer. The suffering of Christ enables us to endure when we suffer. You see, the first readers of Mark's gospel would read this roughly 30 years after it happened, and it would be written to those in Rome who were under the fierce persecution of the emperor Nero. How would they hold fast? By looking to their king who suffered in their place so that they might suffer well when persecuted. How could they do that? I mean, consider the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they who mourn. Is that what you would expect to hear? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst. Blessed are they who are poor in spirit. Blessed are they who are meek. Blessed are they who are persecuted. How could they do that? How could they feel blessed in those moments? Because the lamb that was slain is also the one who was resurrected to reign as the exalted king. So in his kingdom, it is true that the poor receive an eternal kingdom, that those who mourn are comforted in the presence of God, that those who are meek are seemingly weak to the world are actually those who inherit the whole earth, 
that the hungry and thirsty, when they feel that in the pit of their stomachs, are ultimately satisfied with the righteousness of God, that those who are persecuted on this earth will know the joy of the kingdom of heaven, and that even the dark is not dark with Christ, because we have this light within our hearts that Christ is our King. And the final reason to look at the suffering of Christ is that the suffering of Jesus reveals that He is the King worthy of worship. This is a pivotal moment in the gospel whenever we ask, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Has the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of your heart to acknowledge the reality that it seems that everyone has missed in the story? That Jesus indeed is the long-awaited and eternal king of everything and everyone. The Christian life is a theocracy that although we might live under different governments and politicians, ultimately Christ is our king and we live under his rule. We live under the gentle and kind rule of Christ. We live in obedience to his commands. We are now new citizens in a new community called the church. And because every Christian is a part of this kingdom, we faithfully belong to churches that represent this kingdom throughout the world. We have been given a sense of purpose, sent to our neighbors and the nations to make Christ's kingdom known to those who are enslaved and those who are orphans. We have been given a battle to fight, not a physical battle, but one that wages war against sin and the desires of our flesh, pushing back darkness so that Christ the light would shine in a dark world. May we live for the glory of our King and declare the good news of his eternal kingdom. Let's pray.